Hello and welcome to this podcast exploring the benefits of closer alignment of housing and health. When I started, I had a very irate finance officer who told me I was going to land everybody in jail. Some of the stats that have come from wellbeing workers have shown that there's been a huge reduction in 111, in GP usage. One case, there was something like £17,000 saved on one individual. This partnership works for Abbey because they know that they've got long-term supported tenants in properties. It works for the support provider because they know they've got the backing of the Mental Health Trust and they know they've got the landlord on board also. And it works for the local authority because they would know these individuals are duty anyway in, in terms yes. of housing. It's taken a long time to get people in a very process-based focused to think differently and I think it's time and resilience really. I'm John Pritchard, Associate Director of Housing at Southern Health NHS Foundation Trust. We provide mental health, learning disability and community health services across Hampshire. I'm particularly focused on creating partnerships that deliver innovative and sustainable patient discharge solutions. Sharon, can I invite you to briefly introduce yourself next please? Hello, my name is Sharon Collins. Myself and my colleague Patrick Fowler are commissioned by the Hampshire and Isle of Wight Integrated Care System and we provide some thought leadership and facilitate a network that brings together housing health, social care alongside statutory and voluntary agencies to improve health and well-being of our local communities through a focus on the home. Hi, my name is Mary Morgan. I'm Programme Director for Housing, Health and Care in Gloucestershire. So I work for NHS Gloucestershire Clinical Commissioning Group and I also work for Gloucestershire County Council. Gloucestershire has got six district, borough and city councils that are actually the housing authorities. So happily, we have formed a strategic housing partnership and improving health outcomes through the home. So Mary, I wonder if you can kind of kick us off really with a view of the current housing position and what the future direction of that might be in, in Gloucestershire. So in Gloucestershire, we have quite an affluent, and this is very generalised, side of the county, Cotswolds and Cheltenham. Then we have a less affluent with Gloucester City and Forest of Dean on the west side of the county. That leads to, from a commissioning perspective, certainly from adult social care and from health, a market position that is not great for us in Gloucester. So we have lots and lots of housing providers providing very luxurious flats at very high cost. And we have all our supported housing, which I've got to be honest, we are starting a programme of work to review because we know that a lot of people are not, you know, people with mental health issues, etc., not necessarily living in the best accommodation, somewhat linked to the fact that they're in those less than affluent areas. So the other issue for Gloucestershire is we have a very, very high elderly population and we don't have a unique selling point in terms of attracting young people into the county. So I think from our housing perspective, we've got quite a, a journey to go on. The most important thing for me is that we're, we're talking about homes, not housing, and that a lot of those models we put in place suffer from a lack of human response. So they you know, often have a housing provider and then you have a, a care provider and a lot of things fall between. Now, I, I'll stop there and just say that the other emphasis we have in Gloucestershire is that we've obviously got a lot of existing stock. We need to widen our input into the private rented sector and continue to focus on those things that stop people, particularly going into hospital, which I'm sure you'll understand, John, because we all know that when someone older goes into hospital, it has unintended consequences to their health and well-being. And often due to system pressures, they will end up in long-term institutional care. So those are some of the main drivers behind trying to influence the housing in Gloucestershire. I think that's really interesting, Mary, because I think in the Hampshire and Isle of Wight system, I think there's been a conversation 
that's developed. And certainly with the commission of, of the collaborative, we've been working with the system for the last three years now. And previous to that, conversations and work behind the scenes. And I think it's really interesting that the ability to collaborate across the system shifts the focus of health initiatives. So rather than treating symptoms of the lives we lead, we end up in the place where we live our lives. So it's given us the opportunity, I think, here in Hampshire to develop a whole new raft of insight in a way that's not been possible before by recognising that health begins at home and the importance of home in health. It stands us in you know, really good stead to actually make a significant change to the way that health and wellbeing services are, are delivered in local communities. And certainly, I think our commission, if I may just add, I think we're the first multifaceted commission of its kind here in the UK. And we span uh, three core strands. First one is around building greater community resilience. The second is around making better use of our collective workforces. And thirdly, Mm. better use of collective land, assets, building and property. And I think you're right, you know, creating that greater social impact rather than capital receipt is key in how we step forward. And I think we do that in a number of ways, certainly across Hampshire and and the Isle of Wight system. We do that in a number of ways. We're driven by the data of our population and and driving that population health. But we also rely heavily and and empower the individuals within those partnerships and within those conversations and to develop trust in order to bring some of these propositions forwards and move forwards some of the conversations that have been taking place for a long time. But there hasn't necessarily been that drive to see them through to the end. It's been quite I, organic as well, hasn't it, I think? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think that there's been, whenever you start something new, you get early adopters, don't you, into the system, and some people are raring to go and ready to go very quickly. And I think one of the benefits of the approach across the Hampshire and Isle of Wight system has been that it, it has been allowed to develop quite organically, and there is that top-down, bottom-up, middle-in type work going on across the entire system. It's not just reliant on one place to start which I think has been a real benefit. My challenge to that though Sharon is is of course you will always end up with those local authorities that are forward thinking and, and more innovative than others that do always step up to the plate and want to get involved in these conversations those early adopters and that's brilliant we need those but we need them all to do it we need to help others to do that you know those that, that may not be quite as well resourced or, or funded again this is where the system-wide approach comes in you know how can we use that collective workforce to to help some of those smaller less focused local authorities in, in this area sorry mary okay no view i have more or less because i'm very very lucky to work in a progressive ccg and county council to be allowed to drive a lot of this but making those trying to make those relationships and trying to find those bits where we could have some commonality rather than dwell on the bits that are the barriers I do think you're completely right in saying that the reliance on relationships in making some of this happen and the reliance of people being brave and stepping Mm. into into that space you know certainly the early conversations that Patrick and I had across the Hampshire and Isle of Wight system you know if it wasn't for the bravery of that leadership that you know caught the imagination of actually switching the focus from hospital beds to beds in people's bedrooms you know and the scale and the possibilities that that would bring you know none of this work would have happened but it is like a bit of a dating agency when you start I don't know if that's been the same with you but sometimes it can be tricky bringing people together around that sort of central vision and and build curiosity that things can be different so it'd be really interesting to hear how those relationships started for you in Gloucester. 
When I started, I met with lots of finance officers. In fact, I had a call from one very irate finance officer who told me she was, I was going to land everybody in jail. was not at all impressed to start with. But at the time, we were all talking about one Gloucestershire. We were very much, you know, and we still are talking about one Gloucestershire, but you can't go from one room and be, you know, expanding how great that is and then going into the next saying, no, I'm not going to work in partnership. So that gave me great leverage. But it made me laugh because I went to a disabled facility grant, DFG, meeting with DFG officers and OTs and someone I knew was there and apparently when I'd left the room they said that woman she just doesn't get the rules she just doesn't get it and so it's taken a long time to get people who are very process focused to think differently and I think it's time and resilience really and building the evidence base I suppose isn't it with with those early adopters that Sharon mentioned building the evidence of how things work and how things can work in order to showcase what it is that's possible. Yes, that language, I think, in changing the system narrative is also Mm. really key in those just repositioning people's lens, I think. Our work focuses and uses the home as a lens to well-being, so everything's sort of rooted through that. But that really helps people, I think, move away from those legacy systems and lock in a a different culture and a different way of Mm. thinking about the current problems and what the potential solutions may well be. Some of the work we've been doing with Southern, with your colleagues, John in Winchester, alongside Winchester City Council, is a fantastic example of a local authority, I think, seeing the need for closer ties to community mental health services. And they funded a full-time post sat within their housing team that provides a wellbeing service for people with low-level mental ill health, people that don't necessarily engage in the system in the way that the system is currently designed or offers their engagement. And focuses on what matters to them. You know, it's a very sort of strength-based approach to community well-being. And the collaboration that's been brokered between the two organisations is really reaping rewards in terms of some of the impact it's having on people's lives, helping people sustain quite vulnerable tenancies, perhaps engage in clearing arrears or debt, perhaps dampening antisocial behaviour. Very simple things at a very low level have made a big impact. The same is true for the work that Vivid Homes and Solent NHS Trust are doing. Vivid are are a really large landlord in Hampshire. They've got about 32,000 odd homes and they've invested in two wellbeing workers who work and are mentored by the Solent NHS Trust to support people who, again, are vulnerable at losing perhaps their tenancy or are living in the community with poor or uh, deteriorating mental health. Certainly some of the stats that have come from there have shown that there's been a huge reduction in 111, in GP usage. I think for one case, there was something like £17,000 saved on one individual who was supported back into his home following a burglary. I just think it brings a whole new dimension to the opportunities for health. So I don't know if you want to talk about the work that you've been doing with Abri. Yeah, indeed. So just picking up the point that you mentioned about Winchester, so that that is a that is a really good model, and, and that individual that works for for the city council is receives supervision and, and advice and guidance from the local community mental health team. Really works in that conduit between health and housing and bringing those two teams together, and really mm-hmm. deliberately blurring the very traditional lines between yes. health and housing. Then we're seeing that model interest in that model expand in in different ways across other local authority areas within uh, catchment. 
But just to stick on that point for a moment, if I can, in some of the other sort of collaborative work that's going on in terms of links with housing teams and and social care teams is within a couple of our hospitals, we have weekly drop-in sessions where social care colleagues come and hold a weekly drop-in session so that housing needs and, and social care needs can be assessed and referrals undertaken, benefits applied for, all of this sort of stuff can happen whilst they're inpatient and that trust and relationship starts to be developed. And we've got a couple of local authorities that are also interested in, in coming to add their housing expertise to that drop-in. Because it's this organic growth that we mentioned earlier again. It's, yeah. it's growing organically, but becoming much more holistic because people are starting to see the benefit of it. So we had recognised that discharge from one of our mental health inpatient units, a, a rehab unit, was particularly challenged. So working with Sharon and her colleagues and colleagues at Abri and a support provider by the name of Society of St. James came together to kind of create this partnership, really, whereby we have the option of accessing homes in the community, one bed flats traditionally in the community. Jointly, we will place somebody into the property. It's a very person-centred service, so the home is found for the person rather than the person fitting into a, into a pre-existing vacant home. So once the individual is discharged to their home, they get some intensive time-limited support from our community rehab team for their mental health and ongoing support from their CMHT, their community mental health team. And the principle of the service is that it's a long-term home and and it's somebody's home for as long as is right and appropriate for them. And provision exists within the partnership that the relationship, the, the sort of tenancy of the home will transfer from the support provider to the individual when the time is right, once that person is integrated into their community in effect. And at that point, they become a long-term social tenant of, of Abri directly. And that's a fantastic model. Some very brief research and analysis of, of the individuals that have uh, gone through that service has, has indicated that it We've been able to discharge people about three months earlier than we would have done if that option didn't exist. So not only does that have a huge benefit for us in in terms of capacity and flow through our inpatient wards and bed costs and the associated cost savings in, in that respect, but it has a huge impact on the individual's lives. And they talk themselves about how they feel as if they've come on leaps and bounds from being in that property just by having their own flat somewhere safe that they can call their own place. They talk about how they are looking at going on to volunteering or employment and they've already identified where they wish to do that. So, you know, real sort of insight into, yeah. into their recovery and into their, into their future independence. Mm. An unexpected impact of that was also that there was this huge increase in morale in the staff team in the inpatient unit because there was this sudden feeling of hopefulness for their patients that there was this brilliant new service that they could discharge into. And they'd seen people thrive in that setting. It works for Abri because they know that they've got long-term supported tenants in those properties. It works for the support provider because they know they've got the backing of the mental health trust and they know they've got the landlord on board also. It works for the local authority because they would owe these individuals a duty anyway in in terms of housing. So actually by us creating this partnership and and providing this solution and, and this service, it's created this new offering, as it were, for the local authority. We have a housing expert that works with our frailty teams and one of the things she finds is every part of the system is exactly what they were supposed to do. So Mm -hmm. social care have done that, but housing have done that. But we did this really specialist kit, but there's no liner on the floor. So nobody will, will, you know, we can't get it fitted. So she now has a fund, I refer to it as her slush fund, 
because mm. we can go to voluntary sector and things with things like that but actually we need to be swift about it so she can just you know so we've got a really good case study of somebody who's a lot like some of the people that you're trying to support who actually just needed a few bits and I think often what we come up against especially in NHS we talk about integration but sometimes with the NHS we're not very integrated Mm. It's about that personalisation, isn't it, for those discharges? You know, as you say, Mary, if that fund wasn't there, you would potentially discharge somebody to their home. It it wouldn't be right, appropriate. You wouldn't be able to fit the adaptations. And very quickly, they would potentially deteriorate or fall or something, which would Mm. lead them becoming impatient again. And we know the evidence, the data shows us without any shadow of a doubt that each admission deteriorates somebody further and the length of stay becomes longer. They become more difficult to treat. We need to break that cycle where we can. That's, Sharon, where some of the other work that you're involved in, thinking of the work in Portsmouth there. We've helped a number of partners come together as a sort of collaborative commissioning. And it's a specialist in-reach service that works in QA Hospital, Queen Alexandra Hospital in Portsmouth. Works alongside the emergency team and also discharge and triage points within the hospital. It sort of builds on the work we started last year, which was purely around homelessness prevention. So people being caught in the cycle, you know, Mary talked uh, about that cycle of tipping perhaps into crisis, hospital treatment back out then tipping back into crisis again. But, you know, our plans were scuppered because of COVID. So this year we've stood up the project in a slightly different way focused around mental health and well-being so enabling people and supporting people when they present at the emergency department to remain but also preventing people who present homeless so people experiencing homelessness preventing them being discharged no fixed abode you know back out perhaps onto the street or sleeping in a car staying in a tent that type of thing so the service stood up in January time and runs, I think, for six months in total. So we're partway through that, but already seeing the benefit of being able to catch people. And I think the beauty of the, the project this year is that we've also extended the specialist housing outreach team to work alongside the South Coast Ambulance Service. So we have housing specialists then attending people in crisis who are at risk of being homeless or are currently homeless. So perhaps someone who has taken unwell, who's been sleeping on the street, or perhaps someone living in a hostel that is struggling to go to hospital in the first place. And that again has reaped some immediate benefits around signposting people to the the appropriate care for them but also supporting people so that they don't self-discharge either and stay for the course of their treatment. Some of the work that we've been doing through Covid I think has enabled what was quite an invisible community to become visible across the system in a way again that hasn't been possible because of the nature and the structure of the, of the way our system's configured But there's been a work stream of unitary district partners, public health colleagues, etc., who have really driven change for some people who are marginalised by the way the system is currently organised and our our services are currently offered. And, you know, just the appetite, I think, to ensure that there's consistent healthcare that's accessible to everyone. It's not just within perhaps the confines of some of our more major cities and it is a consistent homeless healthcare offer you know wherever you might be across the system I I just think you know it's more work to do there around health inequality big subject though isn't it 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 really is it is but it's not impossible no government 
the government made a an everyone in call in March last year, and you know suddenly we had no rough sleepers. And it is possible to end homelessness, but it, it just takes people's appetite to do that. I agree. We've got to focus on rough sleeping. I completely get that, but we need to be working collaboratively on that step before. And I think some of that. I mean, we've got the ending of the tenants' rights against eviction coming, which is bound to have an impact on our rough sleepers. And I think you're right. I think the health offer is very fragmented and tends to be exclusive and not part of the same. They tend to be health services that wrap themselves around homeless, which, which can be very good. But actually, we need to embed it in our normal core services. We shouldn't be discriminating. And I think there's an element of that. I don't, don't mean that in any way contentiously, but I just think there's an element that people are a bit scared of homeless people and getting too involved. And what comes back to my point about emergency departments not being the greatest places to go if you've got that level of need and social and personal need. Yeah. What we've been working with one of our sort of really innovative local authority partners, we, we recognised through their COVID response that there were suddenly a whole bunch of people that were in temporary accommodation that had, you know, were either previously unknown to services or had, had bounced around between services previously. Mm. That you know, Suddenly they're accommodated and this is actually a really good opportunity to kind of target some support into them around their mental mm. health to keep them well in the community to, to prevent readmission or admission in the future, you know, whilst we look at what their longer term housing options might be rather than just thinking, well, that's fine, they're accommodated, we'll leave them and, and they'll all be okay. So it is about working with that population health. It is about responding to the changing needs of, of communities. And again, it comes down to that partnership with local authorities that are holding the duty to accommodate these folks currently. Mm. Um, and us as a mental health trust, providing that support into the local authority too, to, mm. to work with their tenants. So thanks for joining us today. I hope you found it a really useful conversation. There's so much that we can do together. You know, the solution to our problems is each other. You can find out more about integrated care and access further resources by visiting england.nhs.uk forward slash integrated care. You've been listening to a podcast produced by Robert Mulligan for NHS England and NHS Improvements.